Hi everyone and welcome back to Whale Vomit, the only podcast. I'm Sam Chris here in London where it's terrible and we're all going to die and I'm joined by Amber Ali Frost. Yep, that's me. I'm in Brooklyn where it's great. Capital of the world. We're also going to die but we dress better. Yeah, um, we know exactly when we're going to die. It's in six weeks time. (laughs) Yeah. You're having an election. We are. That was a weird one. You sent this message to me because I was like, oh, should we should talk about this, you know, turkey, something. And then you're like, we're having an election. And I was like, oh, no, Sam, you must be mistaken. You do not have an election for a while now. And then I Google it and I was like, oh, shit, she can do that. Yeah, she wasn't meant to be able to do that. We used to have one of those kind of charming pre-decimalized electoral systems where the government could call one whenever they wanted it was a kind of political equivalent of having shillings and yards or whatever we were meant to have got rid of that with a fixed term parliament act but we decided no and it was especially weird for me because the announcement was on tuesday morning suddenly everyone was talking about a mystery announcement that would be uh, coming out of downing street at eleven fifteen, which uh, apparently is a time The speculation was that Theresa May was going to either resign out of health concerns or that she would die on the way back to her home planet or (laughs) something kind of potentially cheering like that. Um, And I was barely awake at the time. I just had a wonderful weekend in the Welsh countryside, not even caring about politics at all. And then I returned to London to suddenly have all the evil in this country dumped on my head all at once at 11.15 in the morning. The Prime Minister can call an election essentially whenever she wants, and she's decided that she wants one now. I think it's probably worth just looking for a moment at the rationale she gave for why she's calling this election, which... I mean, it's so she can push through her own Brexit plan, right? Like, usually when politicians call elections, there's this kind of pleasing aura of bullshit around it. You know, the the notion that, well, the public must have their say. Uh, The people have to decide who's going to represent them in Parliament. This time, there was absolutely none of it. She was openly saying that she was calling the election so that she could do whatever she wanted with the country, even more than she's already doing it now. Cool, cool. Spirit of democracy. What was really bizarre was the uh, the reasons she gave for uh, for calling this early election, which were absolutely fucking terrifying. She said in front of Downing Street, um, at uh, at the at this moment of enormous national significance, there should be unity here in Westminster, which is a seat of Parliament, but instead there is division. The country is coming together, but Westminster is not. Uh, which is kind of terrifying bullshit, given that the country is not coming together and very shortly should be breaking up uh, apart into about three or four countries. But it's just part because of this Because kind of, of the Brexit. Precisely because of the Brexit, yeah. Uh, it's almost as if if you divide the country almost 50-50 on the biggest constitutional issue of its time, then people are going to kind of start hating each other. Yeah, there might be some tension there. Apparently, we're all getting along fine. And much of her speech was this kind of plea for the opposition parties to kind of get behind her programme, to kind of merge themselves into the terrifying flesh mound that is Theresa May. Every vote for the Conservatives will give me more power when I negotiate for Britain with the Prime Ministers, Presidents and Chancellors of the European Union. Every vote for the Conservatives will make it harder for opposition politicians who want to stop me from getting the job done. 
That's cool. I like it when politicians sound like Darth Vader. She's literally a kind of cartoonish fascist supervillain. If, you know, if like Donald Trump is, you know, a clown become president, then Theresa May is like, like, you know, the nuns in the Blues Brothers? Yes, I do. Yeah, it's it's like if they had the chance to rule an entire country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think there's some implication that there is some level of benevolence to the nuns. Yeah, that's true. It's been a while since I watched the film. I'm just creeped out by nuns. Yeah, as well you should be. Brides of gods, fucked up. That, that, that's Theresa May, really. She has this kind of vestigial husband, but she's mostly kind of married to her own historical certainty. But she, she's going to cream everyone, right? Everyone's wildly unpopular right now because everything's in disarray, and it's just it's just going to consolidate power. What I don't get... I, look, I don't want to sound too tanky here, but I feel like this kind of a loophole... I am not overly enamored with democracy. <laughs> it seems like a bad idea to allow, you know, um, the um, rapid passions of the crowd to allow those to influence government so immediately and directly. But, you know, I also think everything, you know, central planning should be done by a massive supercomputer. So, I mean, and, and no one is no one is bothered by this, like that she's like, OK, well, this is a really opportune time for me to have like a last minute election so I can push through the, this very aggressive Brexit model. The thing is, she can't just do it by diktat. She needs two thirds majority approval in Parliament for Parliament to be dissolved and then for a new election to take place. But the problem is, like, who is going to vote against an election? Who's going to vote against, you know, giving the British public their say? I would. But again, I think democracy is over. Yeah, I mean, like, like if it were up to me... <laughs> Uh, I would stand up in in the Commons and kind of go, well, the British public hate me and I don't want them to tell me so. I'd rather hide in this room away from their disapproval. So no, thank you. Fuck your election. (laughs) But, you know, um, Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, can't do that because if he does, then when they finally do have an election, he'll lose about as badly as he's probably going to lose this time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I, I honestly, again, I don't think he was going to save anyone anyway. I think it would have been the same thing with Bernie. I think the best thing that he could do is lay bare the limitations of parliamentary or, you know, in our case, our, our own electoral republic politics, which I think is good. I think I think it's, it's a necessary public failure. I'm glad that he... It's like, oh, well, let's try let's try and play by the rules. I think there needed to be someone who tried to play by the rules and just like fell on their dumb face. Yeah, this is a this is a position of like uh, a lot of Marxists I know. I mean, I feel kind of um, well, actually, their further position. It's like a micro acceleration. Yeah, I don't I'm not, yeah, I don't consider it, it, myself it kind of... an accelerationist, but like a tiny bit. Well, I mean, it, it kind of resolves into that in the end. Like he, uh, a lot of the people who really wanted Jeremy Corbyn to win. Uh, are also the same people who absolutely acknowledge that you can't really get anything done within a kind of capitalist reformist framework. That if Jeremy Corbyn did become the prime minister, he'd end up getting completely fucked over just in the same way that Syriza did in Greece um, or even, um, Christ, I forget his name, the uh, the left-wing French government, the Mitterrand government in the in the 1980s, uh, where they really tried to uh, to build socialism within the the context of international financialized capitalism and it didn't work and the idea is that Jeremy Corbyn does all of this and then he fails inevitably and then finally it turns you know the left away from parliamentarism altogether but I mean the short-term effect of Jeremy Corbyn has been to turn all of the extra parliamentary left towards parliamentarism 
I feel kind of honor bound to say that anything can happen. You never know. He might just surprise us all. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, but it, it, that's the thing. Even if he does win, I just, uh, then what? Yeah, I mean, like Britain continues sinking into the sea uh, because we're just weighed down by all the shit of 10 centuries of empire. Uh, nothing good will ever happen here. There was a curse put on this island. <laughs> you brought the curse upon yourselves. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. The the first Saxons, when they, when they reached Britain, they dragged the corpse of a kind of sea dragon on shore and it's just burrowed into the ground and poisoned everything. I like that. Um, well, you know, maybe in 500 years' time, the empire of the Mulvenus will rule Britain, um, and then historical justice will finally reassert itself. Yeah, well, inshallah. I mean, I feel like I feel like I should mention uh, the Daily Mail front page today as we're recording, which had a really horrifying picture of Theresa May's face looking like a kind of undercooked custard tart, and then underneath the words, uh, what was it, uh, Crush the saboteurs. What? Uh, which Damn, is about where that's, the, uh, that's yeah. very fashy. No bones about it. The Daily Mail back in the 1930s ran an article headlined, Hurrah for the Black Shirts. Uh, so they have form when it comes to this thing. But yeah, the uh, the tabloid media has been going fucking nuts lately. Did I ever tell you about the one time I got um, ripped off by the Daily Mail? They, they comb blogs. I, I wrote for an arts and culture blog and... They go through and curate, as they like to say, which is is fine if you cite someone, but they didn't cite me. Um, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's a total aside, but I, I, I'm still bitter about it. Um, so I, whenever archives would go online, I would, I would dig through them um, because, you know, you can find weird shit in them. And uh, a bunch of archives from Montreal had just gone public. And I found a bunch of arrest records from brothels. So I just had, like, uh, these, you know, 100-year-old mugshots from the red light district in Montreal. And along with their arrest records, which is, like, a very fun, (laughs) a very fun blog post. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I translated it. Well, I didn't translate. My boyfriend's a French translator. I made him do it. But uh, I translated the, the the rap sheets and everything, and it was it was kind of cool and great because a lot of them had like Edith Piaf like eyebrows, <laughs> and they would be like grinning smugly in their mugshot, and you know it was all these good time girls and. Um, you know, escorts, I guess, is the politically correct. Whatever. They were they were fun loving hookers. And there was like a, a a madam there too. And it was a really good find. And the only sort of find you get from going through archives. And the Daily Mail stole <laughs> my fucking archive research. And then they laid this entire uh, new narrative over it where they were like, Look into the sad, soulless eyes of these poor fallen women. Oh my god! It was so, and also like half of these women were like <laughs> grinning in their mugshots, like they looked awesome. That their, their full smiles belie the pain that lies within. Yeah, they're just like, oh, look at their dead eyes, and it's like that smeared <laughs> mascara because they were fucking tying one on. And then I, I wrote angrily, and I'm like. I like I at least want you to link back to my original post because I know you did not go through the fucking Montreal 
you know, two weeks ago made online fucking uh, uh, police archives from a hundred years ago. <laughs> and they ended up like citing me or whatever. But I was so mad that not only did they steal my shit without citation, but that like they made cool, hard living women into like these tragedy cases. Anyway, I'm sorry. Total aside, that's my personal beef with the Daily Mail, which has nothing to do with the fact that they're like a, a tool of like the worst people in the world. It's just, it's about me. It's about me. I, I'd say the Daily Mail is, it's like BuzzFeed in an alternate universe where the Nazis won the war. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. But they steal from me. But anyway, sorry, where were we? <laughs> Your country is sinking into the sea. Um, no, 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 no. Let's talk about your blog post. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the the Daily Mail has um, they, like they've always said this kind of stuff about um, about migrants, about um, uh, about traveler communities, about like anyone they don't like. But ever since Brexit, they've been kind of using the exact same language against kind of politicians, judges and the metropolitan elite. Like they used to kind of sneer at the metropolitan elite and kind of go, uh, these stuffed up pricks. Uh, whereas now they're they're literally calling for blood on the streets, the return of hanging for anyone who doesn't agree with them, disemboweling children, heads on spikes, etc. Uh, so now it's fascism. My dumb fucking country, you know, like everything about our bad moves are are believable. When America fucks up, it's like a kind of young and very stupid dog falling into a ravine. Like it's tragic, but it was kind of always probably going to happen. But Britain fucks up with the kind of malice and spite of, you know, uh, an elderly retiree systematically poisoning everyone at the village fate. That's dark. Uh, so that's what's going on in your neck of the woods. Um, there's there's just, you know, what fucking Trump watched TV and he was like, oh, no, this is terrible. And then he, you know, he fucking bombed Syria. And it's just it's exactly what we should show him all those ASPCA commercials and every animal will have a home. I feel like there's there's some way to use his idiocy to... No, that's not true at all. That's the thing. Um, Americans think that they can somehow, like, game his stupidity, but it's too erratic. It won't work. I mean, I think there are certain things you can do. Like, if you, if you said, if you were in a direct negotiation with Donald Trump and you started out the sentence with, like, look, you're a smart guy, you could probably get him to do what you want. What was fascinating was, you know, he spent like a, a weekend with the Chinese premier. Uh, and now, and, and now, 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 now China, folks, China's great. They invented gunpowder. We love that. We love fireworks, right? Uh, yeah. And, and, and he's like kind of backed down from his aggression about North Korea because he's like, hey, uh, I didn't know this, uh, but I was talking to the Chinese guy and he's like, actually... It's it's really complicated. And folks, well, it's really complicated. Well, I, I mean, had like, no idea. Like Donald Trump's explanation for anything he doesn't understand in the world is a Chinese person probably did it. So when he actually met a Chinese person for the first time and they said, no, not us, then, you know, he's left with nothing. He has to agree with the last person who spoke to him. They, they probably just flattered him in some way. At this point, everyone is kind of aware of how to handle Trump, you know, in the same way that... Uh, you know, Putin's handlers 
like know that it's like you can't directly confront him like you can't do what tillerson did and be like you are complicit in the murder blah 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 because like you maybe could have talked him out of you know direct support uh for assad but like now obviously you can't because then people are going to call him a pussy and then he can't do that because ultimately he's like a 19 year old guy with a camaro Putin is like, he's living the fantasy of every weak and unpopular high school nerd. You know, he's dating a gymnast and wrestling tigers and bombing people and feared throughout the world. He did have a gymnast girlfriend, though, that really looked like me once, and it freaked me out super hard. <laughs> like, she was, like, Eurasian, and a friend of mine who is, like, a sports journalist and covers gymnastics sent me a picture of her, and I'm like, oh my god, that's me, but, like, with my ass on my head. Don't you do ballet? I do. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's you in another life. Yeah, it is. It's it's step me. It's, it's a Mongolian influence me. I, I could be dating Putin. Before he eventually got tired of me and fed me to, like, tigers, tigers or something. Yeah, he seems like the kind of guy that would do that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like like what people don't get about him is, you know, they kind of constantly talk about his KGB background as if he were this scheming mastermind. But what he basically did in the KGB was boring secretarial work, passing messages between people. Well, in, Stalin uh... was a bureaucrat, too. You gotta watch out for those bureaucrats. Yeah, but Stalin was a bank robber before he was a bureaucrat. Also, he was very handsome, and you cannot understand underestimate that yeah putin looks weirdly like my younger brother <laughs> really uh yeah if you add like 40 years on him and take away his hair he has like serious russian face putin does yeah yeah he's got serious injectables though my friend anna who is russian well she's jewish and armenian but from russia she's like oh the the putin injectables thing i've been you know following that for a really long time and i'm like really he's had work done oh my god he's worse than like a kardashian it's insane and you know what it's i gotta say this it's good work it's subtle <laughs> well i mean like he's an actor right He's an actor playing the global Russian baddie. The shirtless man. He, he's fulfilling his role perfectly. Well, I mean, except, like, did you see after Trump's attack on Syria, the, you know, Trump is a Russian agent crowd were really desperate to work this into their conspiracy theory. And they, they seized on the fact that he told them before bombing an airfield where Russian soldiers might be stationed. And then people were complaining about him not starting World War Three by, in effect, declaring war on Russia, including sensible Jonathan Friedland of the Sensible Guardian. Trump's strikes are good, but they don't go far enough because I'm still alive, <laughs> which is hard to disagree with. Oh, I'm still baffled that they're still talking about that. It's insane. It's, I was so, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I you know, the only good thing about Bernie, not the only good thing. I mean, like, the, the, the sort of people are like, oh, being poor is bad. And maybe we don't have to be poor. Honestly, you really cannot underestimate how much Americans take that for granted. But, like, one of the good things is like, oh, shit, the Cold War is over. And they were like, nope. It's like culottes. You keep thinking it's over, but then some asshole decides that they're chic again. It's like they're not a good silhouette for anyone. Anyway, you were trying to get me to read a Wonkhead article, uh, which I'm yeah. not doing. 
Yeah, it was. This is in reference to the French election, in which uh, our guy, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the uh, hilarious, unflappable communist... Yeah, he had a spike. Yeah, well, I mean, like, like when you look at who he's up against, it's kind of pretty understandable. You know, of the top four, there's him, there's uh, Francois Fillon, who's like the French answer to Hillary Clinton, complete with a corruption scandal. Uh, there's Macron, who I guess the best way to describe him is just by mentioning the fact that the media repeatedly, for, repeatedly refer to his new political party as a startup. <laughs> So he's scum. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, the, the liberal technocracy <laughs> is... That's going to be the death of us all. It's not going to be Trump. It's not going to be Putin. It's going to be fucking Mark Zuckerberg. And, no, it's going to be ugh. the wave of the future. It'll crash on all of us. It's immensely stupid. And, well, I mean, like, like this is a guy who describes himself as being neither left nor right, which I'm pretty sure is a code word for I'm a Nazi. No, it's 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 this it's just pure the most insidious kind of liberalism that believes it's post ideological, which is the ideological hallmark of liberalism. Althusser, uh, the good Frenchman. There are multiple good Frenchmen. There's there's the one that was obsessed with his mother. There was the one who ate aeroplanes. Wait, who's that? There's a French guy who would eat washing machines and aeroplanes and so on, bit by bit. Okay, that might replace Barth as my favorite Frenchman. Yeah, he uh, he died of a, I think, a, a ruptured everything. Yeah, you shouldn't eat airplanes. That's a poor decision. Uh, but anyway, sorry, go on. Aldous there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, you know, as you said, like, you're always in ideology, ideology in, like, the, the negative sense, not as in a kind of um, self-declared ideology, but the kind of un unthought of ideological constraints that determine our entire lives, precisely when you say, no, no, this is non-ideological. And like, you know, as soon as you think about neither left nor right as a kind of political schema, it completely falls apart. Like what you're essentially saying is on the question of whether poor people should live or die. I'm no, neutral. well, and it's this idea that, that there's no longer any um, there's no longer any moral element to politics. And, I, you know, I detest moralism as a as a kind of, uh, you know, primary motor. Um, I think ethics are stronger, but. But it, it removes that entirely. And it's like, actually, we've all agreed that, uh, you know, we've reached, we've reached the final form. It's, you know, Fukuyama. It's the fucking end of history. And uh, all, it's, it's, it's not left and right. It's about competent and incompetent. It's about people getting in a room together and solving problems. And it's not like, and it never, it never comes to the point where it's like, well, look, your solution for this problem means people get sick and die or people get bombed or people live in destitute conditions or people, you know, live undignified lives. It's just, it's just like, well, you know, there, there are problems and there's not really any difference between us. We're post ideological. That's what liberals are. And that's why they're scum. Like, uh. Uh, what was he called? Uh, the annoying spaceman. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, <laughs> when when Neil deGrasse Tyson said that, you know, he wanted to, uh, you know, create this kind of new online country where the government would do everything, you know, just by assessing the evidence and finding out what was true. And I just, you know, always kind of imagined a bunch of the villagers in his country kind of going, "You have to help us. We're all dying of cholera." And the government thinking for a while and considering the matter, and then going, "We've decided that yes, you are dying of cholera." His remake or whatever of Cosmos 
which was funded by, uh, you know, Family Guy Atheist dude was the producer. I mean, obviously it was a little persecution complexity, which is legitimate. And I think people are a little too hard right now on the like March for Science stuff. It's like you realize Trump really is destroying and seizing climate change data. There actually is a war on science right now. But his, you know, his idol was Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan was absolutely political. We moved away from that. We've moved away from, uh, now they're just like, oh, well, science is apolitical. And the argument used to be, it's like, no, science is inherently political. Mm. Well, I mean, like Lincoln showed it himself with, uh, what was his his dreadful line on um, on the alt-right or Trump voters or something? I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't remember. You know, the world is round, therefore my head is also round. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but the point is that the, the decision to get rid of all abstract values is itself a form of abstract value. You're, you're making a political choice by choosing to adopt this kind of apoliticism. Yes, it is. Like, the post-ideological, that's it, that is an ideolo- ideology. Well, I kind of have to disagree with you in a way that it's this kind of um, Fukuyama and end of history stuff, because the, you know, Fukuyama was, was, proclaim- was proclaiming that, like, the Hegelian telos had been reached, you know, in the early 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when it looked like liberal hegemony really was just going to reign forever. And that lasted, like, 10 years until 9-11 and then it was killed off again in the financial crash. So I, I kind of feel like what we have now is not no, really... No, 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 I remember all of the shit. I remember all of the lines that came after 2008 with the crash and all of the shit about... That was the thing, is that the argument is that, okay, 9-11 had happened is because not everyone has reached the end of history and we need to bomb them until they get to where we are. That was absolutely within the Fukuyama fucking, like, model. And then the 2008 crash, they moralized this one situation where they felt like, you know, morality had a role where they're like, oh, well, certain people got too greedy. And it was a technical glitch, but it was also, like, a moral element. And and then they made... Well, I mean, here it was caused by government spending too much on their citizens. That was what caused the oh that's right yeah destroy all of our lives that's why you had to get rid of fucking council houses and all this shit it's just you're 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 wasting good money on people and the well-being of their lives but no i i think people are still clinging to this shit yeah but i mean i feel like it's very different now in that you know when you when you see people really advocating this kind of you know this technocratic worldview it's no longer with the presumption of dominance like like what they're doing now is like it's always as a guard against fake news as a guard against demagoguery it's uh, because it's like they lost kind of, it's just yeah, yeah, it's because they've been losing, they've, it was, the end of history collapsed as soon as it started. We, we didn't really finish the bit about France, but... Uh... My biggest concern is, following these EFOP polls, there is a shocking number of people ages 18 to 24 that support National Front. And it's to the point where it's a gap you know, like, like the people older than them are less likely to go national front. I mean, even if they're right wing, it's disproportionate. There is like actual right wing 
youth movement that I suspect is semi-global and it's small, but I just think you should always be terrified when uh, 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 there's a spike in people who are extremely right under the age of 25. It's so it's so significant that that the support for National Front in France is uh, between I think I think it's 18 to 24. Uh, exceeds the 60 and over because they're like, oh no, those are like vichy fucking Nazis. And the right has managed to rebrand effectively. They've done a good job. It's a it's a post-millennial generation. You know, the, um, the millennials who everyone's kind of still fussing over now, even though millennials are all like kind of 35 and have two daughters and a dog and work in branding. Like, like millennials are completely over. Nothing but daughters, because we're feminists and we don't have sons. That's disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and they tell their daughters every day they did it for them. It's not <laughs> clear what they did. Um, but the uh, the millennials are, are are people whose kind of blissful teenagerhood of really coming to know themselves was rudely interrupted by the financial crash, and and so it kind of traumatized them for life and turned them all into snowflakes. But the the post millennial generation uh generation z generation terminus i don't know the the last human beings that will ever inhabit the earth they grew up during the generation pepe <laughs> the frog children yeah yeah they, they grew up during during the financial crisis and it's it's scarred them very deeply as someone who kind of resembles an actual frog i'm sad that they've taken that from me whenever i get like a lot of alt-right trolls who have like a weird psychosexual obsession with me too they have this like oh you have very mongoloid features but that's interesting deep down i think it's because i kind of do i and i'm not saying this as a self-neg i, I just i have slightly amphibious features i think that's where it all comes from it's yeah. i'm i'm a little froggy yeah i mean i look more like a, a salamander than a frog oh that's good that's they're cute yeah like like maybe nudie yeah slightly nudie yeah no but I, I i'm generally worried about a not insignificant spike of the post whatever fucking generation they're called all that stuff is bullshit but it's not bullshit people just under us they're not just even traditional right they're they're fucking fascists. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're fucking Nazis. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we're probably going to be the, the first generation for a while, which uh, when looking at a bunch of young people isn't going to kind of go, oh, there might be dangerous criminals, they might try and take my wallet. Uh, we're we're going to go, oh, they might be fascists. They might want to conscript me into their army and then have me die on the front. Oh, they don't want, they don't want to conscript me. They want... <laughs> no, uh, to be fair, they don't want to conscript me either. You and I are not getting conscripted. We're, we're going straight to the work camps. <laughs> but yeah, I think we, we need to, we need to abolish young people as quickly as possible. <laughs> Get rid of them. I mean, they, they've all come out wrong. I... And I'm so glad I'm saying this now rather than when I'm 40 and it'll just blend into the, just a seamless slush of old people complaining about young people yeah i mean my concern is that 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 they dress poorly and 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 shop at supreme my concern is that like there is a not insignificant and i think global spike in fascist right-wing sympathies among people 24 and younger and i just think you should keep an eye on that 
I think millennials are like the uh, the most progressive generation in 20th and 21st century history. And we're going to fucking, we're going to squander it. We're going to lose to the semi-senile old people, the terrifying clear-eyed young. Oh yeah, we'll be crushed. Yeah. I have no hope for us. I'm extremely lazy. I, I, I remember talking about this with someone after we saw the Republican primaries and Ben, uh, ben Carson, remember him? Sleepy Ben, yeah. The only brain surgeon who practiced on himself. <laughs> Mumbles. <laughs> Just <laughs> dancing off to the land of Nod. Yeah, he was talking about people being armed, and I was like, uh, look, you know, I thought very seriously about my role uh, in, in the resistance, and uh, I, I realized I'm way too PTSD to be on the front lines. I would totally accidentally shoot all my comrades. Like someone would like, you know, drop a can of beer and I'd panic and accidentally just mow everyone down. I would be very good at smuggling, uh, you know, potatoes under some wall or something. And I could hide people. That's it. Like I, 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 I don't have any. And I am, I am from redneck stock i've shot many guns it's not a transferable skill these people are not deer they've been trained <laughs> with video games um they're they would snipe me from a tree yeah but they I would, would be die immediately controller. It, it would all happen in like a kind of augmented reality superimposed on their retinas where they can live out their fantasy worlds of finally crushing the snowflakes that's true no i I don't think like i don't think they're even going to mow us down in the streets it's just going to be our own idiocy that kills us we're we're all going to pack into one safe space and then we're going to become constricted and we'll suffocate to death (laughs) anyway uh, we should move on to our third yeah, segment. Yeah, our, our final segment. But is it art? I, I made you watch a movie. You did. You you made me watch the film Fantastic Planet. Yeah, Planet Sauvage. Uh, which is a, uh, a French-Czechoslovakian 1973 co-production. It, it was in the, the psychedelic era of European animation. If you were ever at a lot of like underground art rock or punk shows and they projected animation on the wall behind the band, you've probably seen Fantastic Planet. It's, it's, it's one of those things that people think is, is subculture, but it's like the top of subculture. People like me, professional uh, cool nerds, where you, you spend all this time ranking what is cool and what is actually cool. It's really, it's introductory, frankly. Um, but I had seen it multiple times, uh, but this was the first time I had seen it and realized I I, I, I actually hate it. Um, but but I, I would love to hear your take on it after having seen it. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess we should talk a bit about uh, what it actually is for people who weren't in the art rock scene about 10 years ago. How old uh, do you think I am? Of... <laughs> this is kind of an uh, allegorical film, but it's not clear exactly what it's an allegory for. Uh, in which It's an allegory uh, for too many things. Yeah, it's, it's this kind of indeterminate allegory. Well, like the basic premise is that humans live on this other planet where they're essentially considered as a kind of pest by these enormous blue creatures 
who uh, periodically exterminate them and keep some of them as pets. And the kind of general message is, well, how would you like it if it happened to you? But it's not clear exactly what it is. Okay, so there's a lot of things going on. Of the allegories, there's like a Cold War allegory because at some point the humans develop their own kind of weaponry. Or, well, not weaponry, but they fight back or whatever. They're also like whatever one you know, 64th the size of the aliens that keep them as pets and and consider them pests. Um, The illustrations themselves are from Roland Topor, who I I loved his illustrations, but because it was actually Czech produced, the animation of those illustrations is total shit. It's it's very jerky and and bad, but there's, you know, it's it's entertaining. It looks good behind... A band of people that have more beauty than they have talent. Roland Topor, uh, he was Polish Jewish, and like he was being hidden on some farm during, you know, Nazi occupation. So, like the idea of it being a, a parable or or an allegory for genocide is is pretty obvious. I mean, there is a genocide. However, it's very crude. When they portray genocide and and the sort of war machines that they use, one of the war machines, I don't know if you saw this, it's just like literally a giant ball that just rolls over all the tiny humans. Yeah. Which is not an impressive weapon. I'm sorry. And it's, you know, a famous piece of art that everyone kind of loves. It's got like elements of like the Cold War in it and like, you know, horrible, like, horrific race science references. kind of references. animal rights thing. And the whole premise is, like... Yeah. Well, I, I mean, There's you know, a touch. Uh, but, but the whole thing is, like, well, what if it was you? You know, what if it was humans? But the thing is, here's my issue with it. It is humans. Humans have enslaved humans, and they have done genocide to humans. So I think that's a poor use of allegory. Yeah, I, I, I guess what it ultimately resolves into is... Uh, what if other people like us uh, doing it, it were kind of bizarrely sexualized blue giants? Yeah. What if they were very uh, anthropomorphic aliens that, you know, were blue but also had tits? Uh, yeah, and, like... and all of their costumes are arranged so that the tits pop out of them. Uh, and so that they can <laughs> fill the screen at a moment's notice as a tiny human is lifted up in front of them. Exactly, exactly. Gotta love the French. It is it is quite French. Yeah, and it's it's just like a very famous piece of like introductory subculture art that everyone likes to refer to. Like, oh, do you like Captain Beefheart? Do you like Fantastic Planet? But, you know, like, yeah, we all do. Come on. But I realized it's bad. <laughs> it's actually not very good because my understanding of science fiction is that it's best used in allegory mm. when it sort of um, creates new ethical problems or creates new ethical ideas and doesn't just use science fiction or alien worlds as an aesthetic to discuss things that already exist very literally all the time. I think like Black Mirror when it's at its best does that. Uh, Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury did it. Uh, Isaac Asimov, iRobot does it. Mm. But there's such a thing as an unnecessary allegory. And I realize Fantastic Planet is just like, well, what if 
What if people were being genocided? That's literally happening. Why do you need to throw aliens on top of that? That's just mm. that's just fucking Avatar. I think I hated it a bit less than you do. I do have a lot of problems with, with allegory. Yeah, you kind of hate metaphor in general. I, I, I love metaphor. I think it's great. I think allegory is like the, the lowest and most debased form of metaphor. Um because, you know, well, the, the thing about a good metaphor is that it's always kind of indeterminate. You know, a, a, a metaphor, rather than simply kind of making something incredibly clear, rather than making it obvious, it complicates it. It allows you to see things in different ways through different lenses. Whereas allegory often does exactly the opposite. Because, you know, essentially you're, you're giving someone a, you know, a, a literary text or a film or whatever, uh, which is a kind of jigsaw puzzle for three-year-olds to be worked out uh you just have to work out which bit in the puzzle corresponds to which real world reference it's it's kind of like uh, the same way that bart describes mythology as this kind of second order symbol of si- uh, system of signs where you have all the normal signifying processes but they only make sense when as a total they're considered a signifier for something else uh and a lot of the time it's it's incredibly useless and there's this definite tendency with allegory to kind of tamp down any indeterminacy in that process of signification so you end up with animal farm where you know to use a can the canonical example of the terrible fucking animal based allegory the worst allegory where the bad pig is stalin and the good pig is trotsky and you know what he's talking about and you just kind of wish instead of disguising his measly trotskyite opinions as a barnyard fable he had just written a short political pamphlet about what he believed and then we could all safely ignore and that's it. the thing is that like i think people want to create art when they're invested in literalism and there's just like no point in doing it science fiction is the worst thing for that because science fiction can be used as an aesthetic mm. You know, you take something like Solaris, which is like, in my opinion, the best use of science fiction. And it has like my favorite fucking line from it. Because there's this like sentient brain planet that can manifest physical living beings from your subconscious. And it manifests this man's dead ex-wife. And at one point, it, she had killed herself. And at one point, uh, another scientist says to this man, don't turn scientific problem into a common love story. But it mm. works the other way, too. Don't turn a fucking love story into a scientific problem. It's bad art. It's bad allegory. You know, give me brain planet. Give me new scientific ch- challenges. That's the best I mean, use of it. I think allegory works. I think the best allegories are the ones that don't work at all. Uh, an- uh, allegories are you know, very tightly, tightly constructed, the kind of allegory where you could just take a chart. And... Because you need a signifier for every actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like the kind of uh, allegory where you could take a chart and just kind of plot every allegorical image to its real world reference is always deathly boring and ends up being incredibly preachy. But uh, allegories are kind of trying improvise on the metaphor allegories that kind of don't work or allegories that fall apart under their internal contradictions are always really interesting because as soon as it stops working as soon as it stops allegorizing properly this kind of space opens up in which you can kind of interpret things differently and i guess my example of that would be uh zootopia which 
somehow won a fucking Oscar despite being terrible. Because everyone's a goddamn furry now. But animals are the ultimate allegory. People cannot stop fucking using animals. And Zootopia, I heard about this, but I refuse to watch it again because I'm sorry, I think it's for furries. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely for perverts. People want to fuck the fox and the rabbit in it and they're going to hell, so it's fine. Zootopia is basically this kind of incredibly worthy, incredibly strained, and incredibly bad allegory about race. It's about a city in which all animals live together, the carnivores and the herbivores. They've reached a kind of cultural compact in which they've decided that rather than tearing each other's throats out and eating their still warm bodies, they're going to eat fish and kind of become deeply anthropomorphized. But fish are not people in this? Where do you draw the line? Fish are not people. Uh, all the carnivores, they love sushi. Um, and, and like it's trying to be this kind of um, anti-racist narrative about, you know, kind of getting over your fear of the other. You know, uh, the herbivores need to get over their fear of the carnivores. But what it ends up being is, in fact, deeply, deeply racist. Because obviously it's central message is that different types of people are fundamentally not the same and are in fact dangerous to each other and it's only this kind of cultural veneer but liberals ultimately kind of have internalized race science in a way that is shocking well yeah they they love the idea of accepting difference Uh, they will kind of immediately assume that that difference exists and that that and that difference is always measured in terms of being divorced from the kind of central white liberal ideal of the kind of generic human being uh you have that and then you have particularities we have to respect the particularities but they are different from us but i mean what's interesting in in zootopia is that um uh basically within the city there's a uh, epidemic of the carnivores going what the film itself describes as going savage uh which i don't think they really considered the implications of Holy shit. Uh, yeah yeah so um i need but, to watch this movie now yeah but but what happens is fascinating because uh instead of like the kind of okay so you have a tiger who goes savage and instead of the kind of uh anthropomorphized sexualized bipedal tiger in a suit and tie that you see for most of the film when he goes savage, he is reduced to, like, an actual animal. What you have is the allegory itself kind of breaking down and everything just kind of reverting back to the reference. If you're going to do an allegory, you can't actually retreat to the literal because that ruins the whole thing. No, that's what makes it good. It's good because it doesn't work. Well, then you have to kind of start thinking about what's actually going on here. I mean, like, you know, the most surface level interpretation is that um, what it's what it's representing is the uh, cultural cultural veneer of anti-racism kind of falling aside, and the ultimate message of the film is oh, you have to you have to prop this uh, this kind of cultural papering papering over back up so that we can have our our nice tolerant neoliberalism. No one can be themselves too much. We all have to kind of anthropomorphize ourselves, domesticate ourselves. Oh, so it's it it it's like refers to assimilation because ultimately, and in the concession to that believing that that is con- assimilation means that some people are more inherently barbaric than others, and they have to fight that. 
That's so gross. Yeah, yeah. That's so terrible. gross. But uh, I have a slightly different interpretation. What causes all these animals to uh, to go savage? I'm not going to spoil the ending because I know that everyone's going to want to go and watch this film now. But it's uh, it, it's mediated. Uh, it's mediated by this blue flower, which is distilled into a drug and through this kind of drug what we do is rather than animals turning into people or vice versa what you have is you you switch between different levels of reality between the kind of anthropomorphized cutesy uh, cutesy animal level reality of the film and the kind of horrific incursion of what actual animals are like uh, which kind of makes me think that Zootopia is like the greatest unacknowledged adaptation of Philip K. Dick ever in cinema uh so i i really am aggressively anti animal allegory but there is one animal allegory that i think is brilliant and i think it works and it's art spiegelman's mouse yeah have you read it i have yeah it does a beautiful job because it very much acknowledges uh like what it is because it starts out with the, it starts out with a Hitler quote. That's the first thing you read. It's the Jews are undoubtedly a race, but they're not human. It's 100% self-aware. It also goes back and forth between uh, his conversations with his father and the narration he creates where, you know, all the Jews are mice, the Poles mm. are pigs, and the, the you know, uh, the, the, Nazis the Nazis are, are cats, cats. And I think yeah. the Allies are dogs? Uh, yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah, it's been a while since I've read it. But this is literally the one situation where an animal allegory makes sense. Also because, first of all, Art Spiegelman, you know, he cut his teeth on, like, very ironic, vulgar comic art. He, he did uh, the these wacky packages, which were these parodies of mass-produced things, you know, mass-produced products, like whatever, raisin bran and, and oatmeal and things like that. And he did uh, Garbage Pail Kids, which I don't think those even existed in Britain. But they were just, like, these disgusting trading cards of repulsive children um and then he did this thing in a completely self-aware way where he's like okay cat and mouse and he was very very aware that that's like okay this simplistic tom and jerry thing uh and in many ways he was doing it sort of as a he was portraying it in this allegory as a service to his father who frankly was a giant Mm. dick and he never stayed away from that either he was his father was not good to his mother he was not good to his second wife he had he included this part about um his his father's first girlfriend who he he treated very poorly and it was insinuated that he married his mother for her money and all of this shit uh and it's interesting to use an animal allegory in this situation because it's simplifying a very complex tale about imperfect people into a kind of disnified holocaust story which seems like the best thing he could do for his dad i think it might be in the the second mouse uh but there's a great interlude where he posts some where he includes some pages from a previous comic he'd done about his relationship with his father mm-hmm. and you know, they're mice the entire way through. And then suddenly it changes to this very different style in which everyone is kind of um, 
hyperbolically fleshly human and it's almost revolting it's this kind of and it's disgusting yeah 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 it's gross yeah it's, it's this shock of of stepping outside of allegory it's a kind of allegory that works precisely because of its ridiculousness and its limitations because it's aware of the stupidity yeah, of because itself. Spiegelman's a fucking boss all of his New Yorker uh covers have been amazing too and also he's he's always been very he's had incredibly good instincts for a man his age too politically he had a really amazing um uh, cover sort of that in support of of Palestinians, but yeah, no, and that's the thing. It's extremely self aware. He knows that it's it's a ridiculously reductive concept to be like, oh, well, the Jews are mice and the you know the Nazis are cats, uh, and he breaks from that. But in some ways, I I think it was just kind of a service to his father, who it seems like he didn't really like that much. Or at least he portrayed him. He, he he was more fond of portraying um, the sort of contention between them. That's the other thing is that like talking about not liking someone who's been through like a horrific PTSD trauma uh, is is very difficult to talk about. Um, but he has a really excellent job of it. Um, it's like honestly, I think the only good use of animal allegory I've ever fucking read. I I and you know I'm a defender of Orwell. Uh, I'm a defender of 1984, but it, Animal Farm it's not is, good. It's not a good. It's book. not good. It, yeah, it, it's a it's a miserable historico-political pamphlet that's absolved of the need to accurately represent things. By yeah, he's like, oh, I don't allegory. have to be smart. I made an I, I made an art. Yeah, yeah, and and it's the connection of allegory with satire is always terrible because what you essentially end up with is one of those terrible fucking political cartoons where uh, you have a giant pig that's labelled government spending and it's falling into a well labelled the deficit and and you look at the thing and you wonder why these people get paid because it's not imparting any new information whatsoever or providing a new way of looking at things it's 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 like it's like children's books for for adults, but they're about the economy. It it's, is. It's the yeah. the fat cats in Washington, but they're actually cats. Mm. No, I mean it's it's the level of a political cartoons, which is yeah. frankly the most debased way. It's the most debased art and the most debased political commentary intersecting. In, into just trash that no one ever wants to read. Well, yeah, metaphors are tuned to the possibility that something could be something other than what it is. And allegory does the same thing, only so long as that other thing is also exactly what it is. Right, which again, never works. Or if it, if you are trying to make it work, you turn into a liberal that ends up arguing race science is real. <laughs> like, yeah, actually, yeah. we are a different species. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, because, it's, because it's always very overdetermined. You can either play with that overdetermination or you can just kind of give in to it. It's a very crude political tool uh, and of use to nobody. Um, allegory is like vodka. There's no point in taking it neat. Right, which is why, which is why fucking Planet Sauvage... Or a fantastic planet is not actually that good. I'm sorry. I went to the same basement shows a lot of our listeners went to. It's 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 not that good. I I would say the uh, the film is better than you're giving it credit for, precisely because it's not that good. Because it's jerky. Because it doesn't make any sense. Because it's full of nonsense. The object of the allegory is never clear. 
So you are kind of allowed to turn it into this kind of cultural unit that as itself has no meaning whatsoever. But I could see people being able to uh, apply it to different situations for it to be used as like a kind of shitty entry level basic allegory that can do whatever you want it to do. I I like Roland Topor too. The illustrator is brilliant. Honestly, the imagery from it is amazing. It's just, it's like they forgot to write they forgot to write a story for it. They just plugged in an animal farm thing and put in new slang. Okay, but is it art, though? It's art. It's just fucking half-assed art. I'd, again, I'd rather watch Solaris for the 30th <laughs> time. That's what you do. That's what you do with science fiction. You create new ethical and philosophical situations that challenge you, that make you fucking wonder if you're turning a scientific problem into a common love story or vice versa well with that advice i uh i guess our time's up yeah yeah keep folks keep creating new ethical and philosophical dilemmas for yourselves it's the only thing that'll get you out of this yeah don't write allegories the fucking shit imagine something all right uh thanks very much next time bye